Our text during this time will be Psalm 46, so if you have your Bible, I'd ask that you open it to Psalm 46, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter, Psalm 46. The Word of God reads, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamot, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Father, we God, we pray as we come to your word that you would open up our hearts and our ears to receive it. That ultimately you and you alone, the God of Jacob, the Lord of hosts, would be exalted. So give us ears to hear, Lord, that you may be glorified. And may you comfort our hearts with this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In a, t- in a time now, as we all know, maybe, maybe even now more than ever, believers need to know why we can have, face, have peace in the face of uncertainty. We need to know why we can have peace when it seems like everyone around us does not have peace at work, in our neighborhoods, and so forth. And maybe not all of us are directly impacted or even scared of the looming virus in our our society now, but I think there are also outcomes and and, uh, other results from that that kind of affected us in terms of the economy, in terms of our lifestyle. I mean, things have changed for a lot of us. In fact, I read an article just the other day that there are now 26 million new applications for unemployment. Then numerous people, many people are affected by this, not even just directly, but indirectly. And one thing I think it's interesting, and I'm sure you've noticed as well, is that celebrities have come, come up and they've tried to bring encouragement to the people. And one thing I hear them say often is that, you know, we can get through this. We just need to have faith. You may have heard it too from news anchors, from mayors, from governors. We, just, we can get through this. We'll, we'll stick it through. Have faith. Now, I can't question the motive of every single person, but we do need to ask the question, how can you grant that assurance that we can have faith and we'll make it through? On what basis can you promise me that it will be okay? How can I have faith? Now, believers, we know the answer to that question. And D.A. Carson, I think, also speaks to this in one of his books, How Long, O Lord, it's, it's, it's speaking of the topic of suffering. 
And one thing I think he's, he, he kind of pointed out that's important for us to know in terms of the, the aspect of faith and Christianity and, and, and enduring through suffering, one thing he said that I think is very important is that it is exceedingly important to appreciate that the comfort God gives is real comfort. It is not mere stoicism expressed in some stony-faced assertion that God knows best. But, but no, I, he's talking about personal comfort. He says the movement of God on the soul. A profound sense of his love, delight in his presence, the comfort of his care and wisdom. That we know that we're not just looking for blind comfort, but, but, but no, that the, we, the comfort that we need as believers is we need to know that the personal comfort of God, the movement of God upon the soul is a real comfort. And it's a comfort and faith that is based upon the word and the promises of God. That no celebrity, no, no anchor, no, no one can give us faith or hope apart from the unwavering truth of God. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this very psalm we just read, he calls this a song of faith in troubling times. I think that's very accurate because as we just read, there's so many troubling things just in this few verses that we just read. And yet Charles Spurgeon rightly notes that this is a song of faith for us in troubling times. And it is a song. It was used as a song, as you see there in the heading. It was written by the the sons of Korah, as it says, who were singers and composers of music, possibly Levitical performers of music in that time. And it also says that this was set to Alamote, which was most likely a soprano or or meant for a high-voiced singer. And it says there it's a song, a song. And if you're anything like me, there's something about lyrics of songs that, 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 that speak deep truths, that speak to our souls better than words spoken, right? That when we hear a song, like there's sometimes that if, 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 I'm, if I'm really down and out, there's some songs that, that have powerful truths that really affect me deeper than something spoken. And I think that's what it's meant here in this text as well, that this is a song meant to be sung so you can reflect the deep truths in the midst of despair. This psalm has been classified as a Zion psalm, and it refers to Jerusalem and the Davidic ruler, and that they would sing these songs as a means of encouragement, and that they would sing these songs for worship. And there are a couple other songs in the the book of Psalms that are, are specifically tailored for this purpose. In other words, I think you can call this, this specific psalm, Psalm 46, the national anthem of hope. This is their war cry. This is what they would chant that they knew these truths to be true, and this was centered in the center of their hope. And I think it begs and answers the question for us, is what happens when the very structure and foundation of the earth that that, that, that earth is built upon is no more? What happens when we see life as we know it as nothing? What does the Bible have to say about that? What happens when everything that we thought was so sturdy and secure starts to unravel? whether big or small. Brothers and sisters, in this psalm lies here the antidote for anxiety, the fix to fear, our prescription for pain, but even more, an unwavering confidence in our God. So what I pray that we all take in here in Psalm 46, there are three truths that promise comfort and confidence in every aspect of life. Three truths that promise confidence and comfort in every aspect of life. 
The first truth we're going to look at is found in the first three verses is that God is our protection. That God is our protection. Now, notice here in the middle of this first section here, there are four important words that I really want to point out in the beginning of verse 2. It says, therefore, after therefore, four words, we will not fear. We will not fear. Period. We won't fear. Now, why won't we fear? We'll look at that, but, but this is important here that the psalmist really lays out here in, in the context of everything else, everything else that's going on, that we will not fear. We know we don't have to fear as Christians. I think we know that we, we serve a, a powerful and mighty God, but I think there are tendencies for us to fear. So I think it's important, and he, he ex- explicitly says it, that we will not fear, but why won't we fear? I mean, we know we have a good God, But here, the psalmist is not only referring to just um, hard times or just difficult times or maybe just a hard day or a hard Monday. But here, the psalmist is really speaking to some dire and tragic circumstances here. He's pointing out not just a hard day or hard hour. He's looking at here at life as we know it being unraveled and destroyed. In the midst of that, he's saying, we will not fear. Just look at the description he gives us in the verses 2 and 3. He says, we will not fear what? Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Like, there's this, this pictures of these national or natural disasters here that he's saying here. The mountain goes into the sea. The seas are roaring and foaming. In other words, the mountains are up high, are now going to where the sea is. The sea, who is down low, is now going where the mountains are. This grand picture of everything you see, this beautiful landscape that God has created, it's now crumbling and falling here. And this is not just a simple problem like death or sickness or even a virus or struggles. But no, the imagery here points out the fact that what if earth and life as we know it were to crumble? What if the mountain and the seas trade places? They're the seas that, that are raging so mightily. Look at it says in the end of verse 3 that the mountains quake at its swelling pride. That the seas are roaring and foaming so much that even the mountains are trembling at this. It's affected by this. This is a grand picture. So what happens if life as we know it were to be completely devastated and undone? What happens if the economy completely crashes? What happens if I lose everything? Well, we will not fear. Why? Verse, verse 1. Why won't we fear? God is our refuge and strength. That God is our refuge and strength. In the face of every kind of disaster, that God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our fortress. Now, the idea of here of a refuge was used in the military context. And it was, as you can imagine, it was a refuge was a place, a safe space, a safe space or a stronghold. And it was normally secured at a deep height or a high height so that no one of the enemies could come and attack it. And they could have safety and comfort in the midst of war. So this refuge or the stronghold was meant to keep them safe and secure so that whenever anyone comes to get them, they can still have safety. It was a place of escape. David here speaks of, uh, in other Psalms, David speaks of a stronghold of of God, that he is my stronghold in Psalm 18 and also Psalm 27 here. That that, that this idea of a refuge was something they they could rest and have peace in, knowing that no one could get them. But in this context that we just read, they're not finding their strength in military advancements. 
They're not looking to, to, to a certain war or a certain army or, or a navy, whatever you want to call it. Their hope was not in military strength. Their hope was in God. That their refuge was not some sort of tank or, or, or mighty men, but their refuge was God himself. That God's not just like a refuge. He is their refuge. He's not just hopefully their strength. No, he is their strength. There are some that suggest that this psalm, we can't be too certain about it, but some, some believe that the background of why this psalm was written was in response to uh, 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. I encourage you to read about it later. But it talks about the, um, uh, a scenario with uh, Sennacherib, he's the king of Assyria, going against Hezekiah, king of Judah. And basically, he starts seizing their cities, and he starts capturing the cities and taking over. And he goes up to, to Hezekiah, and he says, you know what? You need to give me this amount of money, otherwise I'll take you all out. So what does Hezekiah do? He, he strips, gets gold, silver, and gives him the money to, to Sennacherib in order to save the city. And then Sennacherib comes back, and he says, you know what? I don't want the money. I want everything. I took some other cities. I'm going to take yours, too. Very confident. And if you read the account here, Sennacherib, he's, he's very boastful. He's very prideful because he says, you know what? And, and he tells the people of God of Israel, he says, you know what? If Hezekiah says that the Lord your God will save you, don't believe him. And, and you know how, how prideful he is? Is that he even, he doesn't say your God, like, you know, the God that you worship, not Molech or whatever. But your God, he says, no, no, if Yahweh, the covenant name of God, he provokes. If he says that he will save you, don't believe him. So naturally, weak people probably begin to fear. But you know how that account ended? Spoiler alert. In the night, after Hezekiah prayed to the Lord God, begging him to save him, God sent an angel and struck 185,000 men down overnight. What's left for them? Nothing. That God struck them out completely, obliterated Sennacherib's men. That God was zealous about his name and zealous about his own. For them, they knew God was their refuge. They knew God was their strength. And even apart from this account, even if this psalm wasn't is stemming from this account. Think of all the other historical acts of God in history. The, the Red Sea, defeating the Philistines, the Moabites. I mean, all the people that, that God, they, they saw for themselves and through the generations that God kept them and, and held them and upheld them by, with his omnipotent hand, that he sustained them through every danger, every war, that he kept his hand upon them for his name's sake. They knew God was their refuge. They saw it personally. They knew it in their history. I, I can imagine their grandparents just telling them stories about, you know, when we were walked through on the dry, land through the Red Sea in order to escape Egypt. No, no, no. You know, even, you know what else happened? God struck down these huge giants in the name of God. Like all these stories that I'm sure they knew about, they knew God was their refuge. And because he's their refuge, they knew nothing could conquer God. That no one can even come against God. That any attempt to come against their God is laughable, right? That coming against God is like throwing a rock at a tank. It's like trying to set the Pacific Ocean on fire with a match. Like it's, 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 it's laughable. There's no hope. God, as a refuge, he's impregnable. He's unassailable. He cannot be overcome. But look what else he says. That God is our refuge and strength, but what else? A very present help in trouble. 
Now, I think so easily we naturally just glaze over the, 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 the very in this, in this verse, in that line that he's a very present help in the time of trouble. It's really emphatic here that he's saying that he's not just present in the time of trouble, but he's a, he's a very, very present, immediate help. In other words, one, per, one person put it this way, that he is a help that can be found when you need it. Spurgeon said that he's more nearly present than even the trouble itself. That he is a help whenever you need him. He's an immediate help. He's found easily in the time of trouble. That God is near. That he can be found. He's not far off. He he, he is close to his people. And he hears the cries of his people. And the, the psalmist here says he's not only our refuge and strength, but he's very near in our time of trouble. So we can also note here that obviously... God doesn't necessarily exempt his people from trouble, right? I know I'm not alone in that. We know that we are experience trouble. We experience hardship sometimes. We experience trials. So we're not exempt from it, but we know that even in the midst of our trials, even if the world should change, even if the mountains cave, even if the seas roar and foam, even if we lose everything, we still know that God is near. And not only is he near, but he is our refuge. And I can cry out to him and he hears me. That's why Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that to come near his throne of grace, to receive grace and mercy in our time of need, that we can go near to God at any time, and he's never too far off from us, that the cry of his child is very near to the ear of God. And I think one implication that we kind of need to settle on this is that it's very easy for us in our time of trouble and our time of need to pray and ask God that our first and our most primary need is God remove this trial. Take it away. Now hear me on this. That's not a bad prayer to pray at all, to ask God to remove the trial. But if I could press, what we should also pray is God, in the midst of this trial, let me see you as my refuge. Let me be your kind of man in the time of this trouble. Let me be God's man. Let me be God's woman in the face of this trial. So even if the mountains continue to go down the hill, I can still know you are God. In the midst of this, Lord, give me a heart that honors you and sees you for who you are. Because this first stanza shows us that God is not only a God who ordains the the tragedy, but he's also a God who sustains us through it. Again, it doesn't mean we're exempt from the trouble itself, but it does mean that God remains faithful in every way in the midst of the trouble. And in one song, it says that the worst that can happen to us hastens our journey home. Amen? The worst that could happen is that we head home. George Whitfield put it this way, that we are immortal until our work on earth is done. We're immortal until our work on earth is done. That the worst that can happen is that I go home to be with my Savior. But we rest knowing that even now, when I don't know tomorrow, when I don't know next week, next month, next year, when I don't know my, the figures on my 401 account and my pro, stock, stock portfolio package, when I don't know the end, I do know that I serve a God who never changes. So we know that God is not only our protection, that he protects us in this grand picture of things. But we can also know that even in, no matter what happens, however great, we also know that God is with us in the small things of life. 
that I don't want to just glaze over the tough Mondays and the tough hours, that even in the midst of that, God is still our refuge, that we can go to him in every hour, every moment for strength, that God is concerned about every aspect of our life, that there's nothing in our life he is not concerned about, and he wants us to honor him in everything. So even in the small trials of life, we know God is still our refuge, and we know that he's our strength. And though the earth changes, he is immutable. He never changes. So God is our protection. But now we see here in the next stanza that God is not only our protection, but he is our provision. And look how we see that. Because as provision, look at verse 4. It says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Then this this great picture of here that he uses the imagery of a river and the streams that that make glad the city of God. He talks about the holy dwelling places of the Most High. That here he's given a a clear picture of us pointing to ultimately the the picture of Jerusalem. That when it says the the holy dwelling places of the Most High, only place on earth that God dwelt among men was the tabernacle where he said he would dwell with them. Israel had a special privilege of God's favor as we know. That he was, Israel was God's covenant people. He called them out out of Egypt. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so they knew they had a special privilege, a special relationship with God. And so the psalmist here says that this river whose streams make glad the city of God, there's a lot of discussion over here. What exactly is the identity of this river? Because there was no river actually flowing through Jerusalem at that time. They had waters and they had the sources of waters, but there was no river. But I think by observation, one thing that we can notice here is that he just spoke about how the mountains were crumbling and the, the, the seas were raging. And now here, by contrast, we see a peaceful picture of a smooth river making glad the city of God. I think that's the most immediately we can notice here. Is that he's contrasting though the, the, all the devastations here, but no, we have a river that flows and makes glad the city of God. In Jerusalem, they had a water supply. It was through the brook of Siloam. And you can see in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, that, that God is um, judging the Israelites for their, for their idolatry. And he, he refers to this, this river of Siloam by saying that you've rejected the waters of Siloam that I've poured out. In other words, saying you've rejected the water that I've given you. You've rejected the, the source of, of, of provision that I've given you. And you went off these other waters. So it's used, the idea of a river here, it was used as a symbol of divine protection against Assyria and other mighty powers that God was supplying for them the very most immediate source of life, water. And he's saying, no, no, you've turned your, your, your face against that. They rejected the waters of Siloam, Isaiah says. So the original reference may be to the waters of Siloam. We can't be too certain, but I think it's used and reminiscent of even a greater theme of scripture that we see. That the idea of a river in Scripture, from Genesis actually even to Revelation, we see that there's a, this huge motif, this huge picture that, that, that is used from the beginning of time to also to the very end. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, in the Garden of Eden, Moses writes that there's a river that flowed out of Eden to the water of garden. That even in the Garden of Eden, that there is a picture of the, of the river flowing to the Euphrates and so forth. But even in in Ezekiel chapter 47, when it talks about the millennial temple, from that temple, it says, under the temple, there's flowing a river through, and whatever touches it is getting life. But even ultimately, you can look at Revelation chapter 22, 
And it talks about when, when, when God dwells with man, it says there's a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That from beginning to end, this picture in Scripture of a river here symbolizes the provision and the, the providence of God. That it's the care of God, even in the midst of no matter what's happening, that he has a source of protection and provision for his people. So the psalmist here is saying that the river makes glad the city of God. He's pointing to the providence and goodness of God within the land. So their hope is not only that he protects them, but really God ultimately provides for them. The promised presence of Yahweh in and with Jerusalem is a source of renewed confidence for Israel, even in the face of attacking enemies. So we know that these streams that make glad, that gladden the city of God, that because God is there, because God is in the midst of her, he says that she will not be moved. In verse, four, verse 5, that since God is there, God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. And I think the psalmist here is kind of using a wordplay for us here because he says that she will not be moved and uses the same word actually in, in, in verse 2 when he talks about the earth. Um, the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. The, the, the word slip is actually the same word he's using here for moved. So even though the mountains slip and fall and change, he's saying here, no, the God's presence is here and you will not slip. You will not be moved. Why? Because I am here and I am your source of provision and you will have everything that you need because I am in the presence of your city. Now, can you even imagine like the other, the other countries around them, they had to manufacture and make their gods from wood, right? But no, no, no. Our God lives here. He made this. We don't make our God. We don't carve our God. But this is God Almighty who made you, made the wood that you made your gods. And guess what? That God lives here. Can you imagine the confidence of that? That knowing that this Almighty God lives here. That he is present and he provides for us. And we don't have a temple, obviously, here today. But there's another theme in Scripture we see of the temple, of, of God dwelling with his people. That from the beginning, Garden of Eden, he, he, he dwelt and walked with men. But even Paul points out, or even before, if you look at Paul, look at the Gospel of John, it talks about when Christ came to the earth. It says that he came and dwelt, he tabernacled with his people. That God was dwelling with his people through the Christ. And Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, that he says not only Christ came and he dwelt among his people, but now he's saying here, believer, don't you know that your body is a temple, that God dwells in you? That we have the hope and that we have the assurance that God is a God who dwells not only with us, but God dwells in us through the power of his spirit. That our body is a temple. You give him point ahead. Revelation 21, verse 3, that behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. The dwelling place of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That this hope that God is present, that we have the assurance that God is present because we know, A, that God lives in us, and B, God is faithful to everything that he says according to his word. And therefore, we will not fear. Because he's our refuge, he's our presence, our protection, and our provision. If you look at verse 6, 
He says that the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. Now, immediately there, we, we looked at the first stanza here. You saw the trouble was basically revolving around creation, that these were natural disasters. But now here in this stanza, we see not only not just natural disasters, but we see wars, that nations are rising up, that, that people are, and kingdoms are tottering, that they're trying to make war against them. They're raging and crashing, and yet Zion will not be moved. Why? Because look what he says in verse 7, at the end of verse 6, that the kingdoms tottered. But what did God do in response to that? He raised his voice. He raised his voice. So in this picture here, you see not in the, in the first stanza that the, nation, or the, the, the mountains and the seas are, are raging and foaming, but now nations, people are rising up. But what does God do in response to that? Does he fight? Did, did he get his sword? No, no, no. He raised his voice. And the earth melted. I just love that picture here that you see that you would think, oh, let's go toe to toe with God. But no, God doesn't go toe to toe with anyone. He steps on anyone who comes to him. That this is not a picture of let's just fight this God. But no, God immediately conquers, not by his hand, but by his word. He says he speaks and the earth melts. That there's nothing they can do. It's really an attempt to come against God. It coming this picture of this miniature, miniature nothing coming against a mighty, almighty, purposeful, and almighty, powerful God. That there's no match for him. That there's no one or nothing that can come against him. In one of the first houses that my wife and I lived at when we first got married, there was a house next to ours, and they had a gate that kind of bordered our house. And they had these two little small dogs, and... Two annoying small dogs. And I never forget, every time I got out of my car from work and I go to the house, they just start barking and barking. And like, you would think they'd really just want to take me out completely. Like, they, they, were, they were small dogs. I can hold them in part of the palm of my hand. And they would just bark at me. And you, they just hated me. And I don't even know why. And I just remember every single time. And after time, I kind of just got tired of it. I'm like, my goodness. They just kept barking and barking and barking. And then I never forget one time I parked my car and I noticed, and I looked out the window, the gate was open, and these dogs were just sitting on the lawn right outside my car. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Okay, there goes my ankles. Like, they're just, <laughs> just going to take me out. And I, just get, I was like, well, so, okay, let me just do this. And so I braced myself, got out the car, and they saw me, and I stood up. And I looked down at them, and they were as quiet as a peep. It didn't say a word to me. You know Why? That gate was no longer there. They were very bold behind that gate, but that gate was removed, and they saw me and how tall I was and how small they were, and not a peep. You know, that's like a small picture of just, of really when it comes to anything that God can do, when it comes to a match for God, there is no match for God. There's no one, no thing, because he is greater than everything, and there's nothing that can stand against him. So when then the psalmist says here that he raised his voice, he doesn't have to do anything. He just speaks and they're conquered. He sends an angel and strikes out 185,000 men. Like God is a great God. So because God is in the midst of her, because God is present in their provision, they know that there is no competition. And this is meant to be a comfort for them because they know that God is their God. And he kind of underlines this at verse 7 when he says that the Lord of hosts is with us. That the Lord of hosts, 
That, that, that's speaking of just not, uh, the God is not just a God of earthly armies, but he's a God of, of heavenly armies. That he's the God, uh, the host of Israel, but encompasses the title of, of a universal reign. And encompasses every force, every army, heavenly, cosmic, and earthly ar- army and authority. That God is the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Sabaoth, he, he is over everything. And there is no war that is even difficult for him. The Lord of hosts is with us. Is with us. And the God of Jacob is our stronghold. That knowing that the God of Jacob, that this covenant God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this covenant God is based upon his own word. And because he's faithful to his own word, I stand secure based upon his own work. That this God of Jacob our God is our stronghold. And just take note here in the psalm that how often as they're singing this song, they're chanting their national anthem of hope. And note here, they say that God is our refuge. This is a hope that this is not just a God that we can just hope to please or hope to come in good graces with. But no, this is God who is our refuge. He is my refuge. He is your refuge. He is your strength. And he is the Lord of hosts is with you. The God of Jacob is your stronghold. And he repeats it again in verse 11 that the Lord of hosts is with you. The God of Jacob is your stronghold. That this is a very personal relationship they have with this covenant God. And the reason why they have a relationship with him because they have a relationship based on the covenant that stands on his own word. And what hope that gives them to know that this Lord is with us. He's with me. That he is my hope. He is my fortress. So I think it begs the question, when we see the earth change and the mountains crumble, the seas roar, nations roaring and the kingdoms tottering, will we look and gaze upon the enemy? Will we look and gaze upon our troubles? Will we look and gaze upon our struggles and our trials? Or will we gaze and look upon our great God? Will we meditate upon the heaviness of the struggle and the heaviness of this weight? Or will we meditate upon the certainty that we have in God? So he's not only our provision, but we'll see here in the next few verses that God is our peace. That he is our peace. Now, if you look here, verses 8 and 9, You say, God is our peace. But look here what he says. He says, come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the word. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns chariots with fire. This is the God of peace. How? I think there's obviously the fact that we know these truths, that God is our refuge and strength. But we know there's still the reality of evil. That wickedness is still here. That we still have a foe, a real foe. But this answers the question of that. That what happens, well, what happens to these enemies? What happens to the foe? That the reason why God is our peace is because we see clearly in this text that God defeats and destroys all wickedness so that peace will finally and ultimately prevail. So how does that happen? He, he, he bids us to come here. Now this is kind of like, here, let, let's see, let's huddle up and look at what our great God is doing because he, he commands us with an imperative. Come, look and see, come and behold 
And what are we looking at? The works of the Lord. So we're not looking at the, the, the situation, the nations, or the earth, or the, the mountains. We're not looking at that. We're looking, we're bending to come and see, look at the work of the Lord. He, he's wrought desolations in the earth. Look, he's making wars to cease. He's breaking the bow. He's cutting the spear. He's burning chariots and fire. You know, look at what God is doing. That he's doing this of and in himself. That he is destroying the wicked. He is destroying the evil. This is a hope for Israel, imagine this context. That they knew godless enemies and godless nations around them. But Lord, we know you're good. We know you're mighty. We know you're prevail. And we know we can have hope in you. But there's still a reality. If I walk out my gate, there's the Amalekites outside. What am I going to do? They knew that this, this hope here in this last stanza, I think, is pointing towards the end. It's giving us kind of an eschatological hope. The fact that God will finally end all wickedness, that there will come a day when all evil will be put away, that he will justly pour out his wrath and all wickedness. And why can I say that? We see come behold, especially behold. You see that word in the Old Testament, oftentimes it's using it as, as almost beholding and see as a prophet would see that. I think it's looking ahead. And sure, I think Israel saw the, the desolations that God maybe did, even with Sennacherib, but that's just a foretaste of what God will do ultimately at the end. When every wrong will be made right by the mighty, omnipotent hand of God. So behold the works of God. What are these works that they're beholding? That he's destroying, he's handling the wicked, and the way that this peace that we can have in the God of peace is by he will do what's right by upholding the righteous but also punishing the wicked. That this is the ultimate, ultimate invitation for us. That we're to look upon the work of God as he does this in and of himself. This is not a team effort. He needs no help. But our God is destroying ultimately. That he is causing the devastations. That he is the ultimate peacemaker. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, he says, using the same word, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with furry and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. But this is day of the Lord language. This is when God makes right with all things, and anyone and anything that stands against him will not stand. It's a reminder to us, this is not our home right? This is not our home. That ultimately, all this that we see here, that no matter how much hope and how much good it causes us now, I mean, these are very good things through God's provision, through his providence, through his, his good graces that he gives us now. But we have to realize this is not our home, that we long for the home when God will eradicate all his enemies and we will dwell one with God and he will dwell with us. But even in the midst of this, look at the hope he gives us to do, even a command that he gives us to do in verse 10. As we behold these works of God, he's destroying, he, he's, he's breaking the bow, he's cutting the spear, he's burning the chariots. It says in verse 10 to do what? Cease striving and know that I am God. 
This is one verse I'm sure we all know well. It's probably on our coffee cups on our wall. In other words, be still. In other translations, be still and know that I am God. But here in the context of wars, these saying cease striving. I think that Nazbi really kind of gets a good sense of that word. Cease striving. In other words, stop what you're doing. Put down your weapons. Stop all your attempts at trying. Stop trying to take hold of the situation. Stop. It's, 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 it's a command. Stop it. Lay down your weapons. Cease all efforts and do what? And know that I am God. The stop the doing and rest your mind in the God who is your refuge. Know that I am your God. One person said that it is not until we're still that we know that he is God. It's not until we're still that we know that he is God. So stop your efforts. Stop striving. Don't worry about it. Stop your anxiety. Stop your worrying. Stop your concern. Stop your, your counting your number. Let it all aside and know that I am the God who sustains. I am the God who conquers. I am the ultimate God of peace. And your peace can be found in me when you're still and you're focused on who I am. And watch what I do. Jonathan Edwards is speaking of this passage. I think he really gives us a a good kind of description of this. He says, how must we fulfill this duty of being still before God? Namely, the divinity of God. His being God is sufficient reason why we should still be still before him. You catch that? That his being God, that he is God, is sufficient reason why we should be still before him. We know him to be God, so it's rational logic. And it's not blind submission. The only logical consequence of he is God, then I just can't, I just be still. (laughs) He's God. And if I know him to be God, I know him in all his attributes and who he is, I can rest and be still that he will give me peace, that he will sustain me, he will give me hope, that I can know that I can trust in the God and fading. Edwards continues that in that he is God, he is an absolutely and infinitely perfect being. As he is God, He is so great that he is infinitely above all comprehension. As he is God, all things are his own. In that he is God, he is worthy to be sovereign over all things. In that he is God, he will be sovereign and will act as such. In that as he is God, he is able to avenge himself on those who oppress his sovereignty. That to be still and to cease our efforts is to know that if he truly is God, There's nothing I can do, and I will trust his sovereign hand and rest and know that he is sovereign. And by implication, we know this, brothers and sisters, that for the unbeliever, they don't have the hope. That God is not a refuge for those who do not know him in his son Christ. That he is not their strength. He's not present. He's not the provision. And he's certainly not their peace. So I'm confident we all know that here, that, that, that God is our, our Savior in Christ. But there are many who, who claim to know God and claim to have faith, as I mentioned here in the early, in, earlier in the sermon, that, that they claim to have no God and claim to have faith. And yet it's very explicit here that God is speaking to his covenant people. And we know we can have a covenant relationship with God in Christ by confessing our sin, submitting to the lordship of Christ. 
and realizing that Christ on the cross paid it all. He paid not some of it. He didn't pay most of it, but he paid all of it. That the wrath of God that was deserved for me, that the wrath of God that should be poured upon me for my sin was poured upon Christ, and he bore it all. And as Colossians points out, that I was once an enemy of God. I was once an alien. I was set apart. And yet God gave me peace in his son Christ. And the only terms of peace with God are through Christ. That I come not in my own efforts, but I come in Christ. So for believer, the hope for us is we know that we have peace with God. Not only because we know he will enact that peace permanently and ultimately, but we have peace with him now. And that peace is not contingent upon our works, but upon the perfect work of Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're secure in the hand of God. The Almighty who will never let you go or let you endure anything outside of his goodwill for your life. Maybe the New Testament equivalent could be Romans 8.28 that we know as well, that, that all things work together for the good. All things That as a believer, you stand secure in Christ because every good thing, every bad thing, every difficult thing, every trial, no matter what God brings on your plate, his sovereign hand served it to you. So let us receive it with joy, knowing that my master is doing good. That this is the hope that we have. How is my God my refuge? Because I know I'm at peace with God in Christ. And everything that he gives me day after day, trial after trial, is given to me by the good hand of God, the sovereign hand of God. And he is making me more like his son in every single trial. So I can rest assured that God is not only my, my refuge and my protection, my provision, my peace, but I know he's my sustainer in the midst of the trial. So that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Amen. That no no death, no virus, height, depth, anything in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. So where do you find your hope, if I can gently ask? Where is your hope? I, I... I think it's easy for us intellectually to grasp this. It's easy for me to grasp this concept. I know God to be a refuge. I know God to be a strength. But in all honesty, if I do a litmus test of my heart, the ways to tell that I'm not applying this to my heart, to my life, is when I tend to fear the circumstances in my life more than I fear God. That when I become anxious over things in my life, when I become worrying about the outcome of X, Y, Z, when I start thinking about the things that are ahead of me more than I'm thinking about God, I realize, wait a minute, my refuge was not in God. My refuge was in my bank account. My refuge was in that which I lost. That when when that is removed from me and I crumble and I come undone, wait a minute, Chris, Your refuge was not in God. Your refuge was in that. So when litmus tests for us, I think it's helpful helpful for us is that when we start to fear things that are in our life, let's ask, why why am I fearing? What am I worried about losing? What am I worrying about not getting? What is it that I'm really trying to place my refuge in, that I'm subtly creeping out the sovereign hand of God and trying to find refuge in something else? What is that thing? God, please expose my heart to it. And I repent of that. And I ask God that you give me a heart that finds my refuge in you. When I'm overwhelmed by it, I have to remember, as Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 7, I need to cast my cares on him. 
that he gives grace to the humble. My grace is not found in the outcome of my circumstance. My grace is found in the God who ordained my circumstance. So this psalm, our bedrock of hope, our anthem of hope. And you know, many of you may already know, but this is also Luther's, I would say, if I can, his bedrock of hope. Because from this psalm, that Luther, he, he, he read this psalm, and from this psalm, at this time, I mean, I'm sure we know the story of Luther, but Martin Luther, the great reformer, but he went through a hard, difficult life. Going through bouts of dizziness, buzzing in his ears that he was trembling, that he couldn't even get up. I mean, he was ministering during the time of the Black Plague, which is way worse than some other viruses present day. He was ministering during this black plague, buzzing in his ears, dizziness, fighting over uh, theological arguments with the Pope and with other Christians of, of the Lord's Supper. And even that, this is fighting the Reformation in general, trying to get the truth of God. And now on top of all of that, Luther even writes about the, the bouts of depression he went through time after time after time. Just going and depressed and fighting depression. Now, he had a rough life. But for Luther... He found his hope in Psalm 46. So much so that he wrote the great hymn that we know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That he wrote that psalm, that hymn based upon Psalm 46. That Luther in the midst of this knew that God is his mighty fortress. And I just love one of the verses in that hymn that Luther writes out. It says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Our God is our protection. He's our provision. He's our peace. Father, we thank you so much for your word that we need this psalm. I need this psalm every day. That God, you know what our tomorrow looks like. You know what our future holds. Father, I pray that even now, today, we would find our refuge in you. That we would surrender all hope and all all wishing and all attempts at gaining anything outside of you. I pray, Lord, we would store and make you our refuge, that we would find you to be our present help in the time of trouble, that we would glean upon your goodness, glean upon your glory, and that, God, that you would mold and shape our hearts with the truth of your word for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.